Hey, good morning, everybody. So good again to see you and so good again, hopefully, to be heard by you. And uh, you can let us know in the comments if the audio level on the mic is uh, good or not, if you need more. Uh, if you need less, just turn me down. I'm not uh, offended by that at all. Welcome, everybody, to Palm Sunday. As we, uh, It's a special day, of course, that kicks off such a special week that uh, we commemorate Jesus entering Jerusalem, presenting himself, of course, to the Jews as their Messiah, only to be rejected a week later and crucified on a Roman cross. And I just want to encourage all of us as we head into Holy Week, maybe in a little bit differently uh, you know, than we're used to heading into it, just really to take advantage of the fact that in these uh, circumstances, maybe some of the distractions uh, that are usually there have been removed, and maybe there's an opportunity this year for us really to lean in to the Lord uh, more, you know, take time to consider what would be the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. Maybe some extra reading uh, that you can do. YouVersion has a bunch of great stuff for those of you that are using that app. Maybe if you're in the habit uh, right now of watching movies, maybe you could uh, watch through one of the movies, the many movies that have been made about that final week and the passion of Jesus' life. Um, this Wednesday, we're having a special regroup. We're calling it our Good Wednesday service, where we'll be going through um, some of the sayings uh, from the cross. So we'd love you to be part of that. Um, this Friday, for Good Friday, we're excited. Uh, Jews for Jesus, an organization, of course, who has come and ministered to us here at Calvary Mountain View each year for many years, uh, is offering a series of special uh, live streams that you can turn into. It's their Christ in the Passover presentation. And so we'll be sending out information in the e-bulletin this Wednesday on how you can be part of that. Tune in and watch one of those presentations. There's one actually on Good Friday at 7 o'clock that, uh, that a number of us are going to tune into. So as you go through this week, consider those things. Keep up your uh, Pray for Five. And uh, this week, again, we're going to switch up. Pray for five different people than you prayed for last week. Um, maybe uh, expand that circle around where you typically sit on a Sunday morning. And let's just see what the Lord will do through that. Uh, if you want, of course, we have our Monday night prayer meeting, which you can join into. We'd love to have you participate in that. Uh, there was an email that went out last week. Also, the link is in the previous Wednesday e-bulletin. It's a Zoom meeting you can tune into or you can call into as well. Uh, and of course, make sure to join us here uh, next Sunday for Easter Sunday, uh, right here virtually as we all get together. And uh, again, a great opportunity to invite uh, a friend to that. You can send them the YouTube link or again, the Wednesday email that comes out will have an invitation. You can forward right to somebody that'll have the link to the service. Again, all the uh, giving information as well is in the Wednesday email, different ways that you can participate in giving uh, online. Uh, the Agape box in the foyer doesn't work quite so well right about now, but uh, we'd love to have you participate uh, online in that. Also, the church office address is right there on the church website. Uh, a number of you are, are sending your, uh, your contributions in that way. So with all of that said, we're going to jump right in now. So turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be this morning in Acts chapter 12, and we're actually going to look at the entire chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. 
Um, On this Palm Sunday morning, we're continuing our study right in the book of Acts. We're going to be celebrating communion at the end of the service today, so make sure you've got your communion elements there at home. Remember, grape juice is great. Uh, Any kind of bread will do. Uh, Tortillas, naan bread, uh, anything that you have, uh, you can have that for the end of service. But things are really heating up in the book of Acts as God is moving mightily. Remember, amongst the Gentiles up there in Antioch, we've seen Paul start to be positioned back center stage. Um, but before we move to Paul, Luke is going to take one more chapter uh, this morning and kind of wrap things up, if you will, with. Peter. It's kind of one of those, you know, meanwhile back at Jerusalem sort of uh, sort of things. It's another story of God working miraculously uh, within the early church. And again, I think as we read through it, it's a great encouragement that he is still doing precisely the same things in the church today. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless his word as we uh, as we study it together this morning. So Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you've provided, Lord, for us to be together here, uh, even in these challenging circumstances. Lord, we pray that um, though we're uh, split up physically, Lord, that we'd be united spiritually. Father, that you'd speak to each one of us, that you'd teach us as your church. Lord, your one spirit would, um, would teach us today. And so we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember, when we last left off in chapter 11, we watched that generosity that sort of marked the new Christians up there in the church at Antioch. We saw them give generously to support the need which they found out about at the church down in Jerusalem. And in the very last verse of our text last time, it said in Acts 11.30 that they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So there they are headed back down toward Jerusalem. We pick up our text today back in Jerusalem, as it says in verse 1, that about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So Dr. Luke kind of sets up this contrast for us between this wonderful season of grace and of generosity that was flowing both within and from the church up there at Antioch to now back to kind of the harsh reality of a brand new season of persecution for the saints there at Jerusalem. And if you've been with us through this study, we've seen that Up until now, in chapter 12, the church has kind of been on sort of a a success streak, if you will. It's one exciting conversion after another. We've seen that revival in Samaria, and then, of course, the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch, right to Saul of Tarsus, all of the Gentiles there at the house of Cornelius, and then, of course, that highly successful work that we watched last week amongst Jews and Gentiles there up in Antioch. Antioch. And yet here in Acts 12, that ugly opposition that was inspired by Satan again raises its head, and we see that it's led by Herod. Now, whenever we see the name Herod in the scriptures, it's kind of easy to get a little bit confused, and we think, well, wait a minute, wasn't Herod the one that killed the infants when Jesus was born, and and didn't he die back in Matthew chapter 2? And the answers are yes and yes, but remember, Herod is a family name. 
And so this evil man, Herod Agrippa I, he's the grandson of Herod the Great, and he's the one that ordered all of those Bethlehem babies to be murdered. He's the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded and who also had a part in uh, sentencing Jesus. Now, uh, they were a scheming, they were a murderous family. And remember, the Herods were descendants of Esau and the, the Edomite people. They were despised by the Jews because the Jews hated the fact that someone who was part Edomite was ruling over them. So this Herod, Agrippa I, he was especially known for doing everything possible. He would go to great lengths to please the Jews, which in this case meant launching a brand new wave of harsh harsh persecution amongst these new Christians. Now, he found it politically profitable to kind of rough up and then to arrest a group of Christians. And then as a part of that harassment, it says in verse 2 that then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, James certainly isn't the first Christian to die because of his witness for Jesus. Stephen, of course, was the first, remember, back in chapter 8. Certainly there had been more since then. But this was a new development in the history of the church because of the 12 who had first followed after Jesus, James was the first of those 12 to be martyred for his faith. And so his death would have shattered any kind of illusion that somehow the apostles enjoyed any kind of a unique sort of a divine protection. And think about this. This was James, right? James, the brother of John, one of the three of Jesus' most intimate disciples, Peter, James, and John. It was this James who'd been there with Jesus and with Peter and with John up on the Mount of Transfiguration and there in the house of Jarius, right? And in the garden of Gethsemane. Significantly, it was his mother. We read about it in Mark 10 and Matthew 20. Remember, she was the one who came to Jesus and asked that her two sons might be able to sit beside him when he had come into his kingdom. And you remember the way that Jesus replied. He said, you do not know what you ask. He said, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And we remember that James and John, not really knowing what they were saying, both said that they could and that they would do that. And then Jesus said again, he said, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I'm baptized, you will be baptized. And so this martyrdom was the fulfillment of that promise in the life of James, who was the first of all of the apostles to die. Now, John, we know, would fulfill that promise by a lifetime of devoted service, despite repeated attempts to martyr him. And of course, John would be the last of the apostles to die. And thinking about this, the truth, of course, is that Jesus never promised any sort of special protection, even for his closest followers. And instead, he even warns us that we need to be ready for persecution. We need to be prepared 
for times of trial. But what he does promise is that he'll see us through those times. He promises that he'll give us special grace for those times. He promises always that he'll be with us in those times so that we're able to endure whatever it is that happens, even and including death. For James, of course, in this case, it was that he'd be killed with the sword. Most likely he was beheaded and no doubt to the cheers, right, of this crowd as they cheered for Herod. In verse 3 it said, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, it says he proceeded further to seize Peter also. So here Herod sees his polling is improving, Right When he killed James, so no doubt he thinks, hey, I can build on this momentum. I'm going to improve my ratings even more by going after Peter. Of course, Peter, in a sense, was known to be the leader of this whole group of Christians. And yet what we see next is that it seems like Herod got a little bit ahead of himself. Look at what it says in the rest of verse 3. It says that he seized Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So Herod had to wait before he put Peter to death because he had arrested him, Luke says, during the eight-day feast of unleavened bread, which comes just prior to the Passover. Because uh, a trial and an execution, even of a Christian, any time during a religious feast would have upset the Jewish crowd. It was against their Jewish law. So instead, Herod had Peter put into prison and put him under the highest security that was possible. Understand, any garden variety prisoner would have probably just been thrown into a cell. Now, if you were a dangerous man, you might have had a guard posted outside the cell. If you were a notorious enemy of the state, perhaps they would have chained you to a guard inside the cell. And yet it says Peter, Luke tells us, has 16 soldiers assigned to him. So four squads of four soldiers each who would have taken turns during the four shifts of a 12-hour period. Now, later in verse 6, Luke tells us that Peter was actually chained between two guards. And so we're asking, well, why this high security? It wasn't like Peter was a violent man. It wasn't like he was a, a murderous man. And yet what Peter had is Peter had priors for escaping from prison. Remember back in Acts chapter 5, and Herod was certainly not about to let that happen again. So he throws everything he has, and then some, at kind of securing his catch. And look what it says in verse 5. It says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And I love this because Herod has his squads of soldiers. Herod has his secure prisons. And yet the church has the power of prayer. And if you underline things in your Bible, 
underline the words, but constant prayer was offered because those are the absolute turning point in the story, right? Herod had done his worst, and yet now the church we see doing its best. We should never underestimate the power of a praying church. That word constant there in terms of how they prayed, it has the idea of being earnest. And literally, it's a word that kind of pictures someone that's, that's stretching out. They're stretching out as far as they can stretch out to grasp something. And apparently, it's related to a specific medical term that talks about the, the stretching of a muscle to its absolute limits. And no doubt, with the the sudden arrest and death of James, probably so vivid in their minds, here the church is praying constantly and earnestly and fervently for Peter's release. You know, he's locked in prison, and yet the church is still free to pray. And the truth is that when every other gate is shut and everything else is locked up tight, the gate to heaven is always open, isn't it? We can always take advantage of that open gate through persistent prayer. And unfortunately, I think so much of our prayer is powerless because it lacks this sense of earnestness, right? We're not stretched out in prayer the way we should be. And and too often, I think we almost pray sometimes with the attitude that we want God to care about things that we really don't maybe care that much about. And earnest prayer has power, not because somehow it's trying to persuade a God who's reluctant to act, but earnest prayer has power because it demonstrates that our hearts care passionately about the things that God's heart cares about passionately. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus promised in John 15. He said that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So when we want what Jesus wants, we can be sure that we'll get what we're asking for. You've probably heard it said that prayer doesn't change God's mind. Prayer changes our hearts. And so people will sometimes wonder and they'll ask, well, why do we even need to pray? Right? Doesn't this gracious God of ours, doesn't he know all about us? And doesn't he know exactly what we need far better than we do? And yet what's interesting is that what we learn from God's word is that he has often chosen to do in answer to prayer things that he might not do apart from prayer. And that he gives in answer to prayer sometimes something that he will not give apart from it. You think about the examples of Moses and of Abraham and how they both pleaded and interceded with God on behalf of others. And as God works in their hearts, he grants their requests. And so prayer, though none of us, I think, really understand how it works, Prayer is absolutely the great resource of God's needy people, right? Prayer for ourselves, prayer on behalf of others. And here, the whole of the Jerusalem church, we get this sense that they're praying for Peter, probably for a week or more. And so we read in verse 6, it says that when Herod 
was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So here, picture this picture. The church was praying, the guards are guarding, but Peter was what? Sleeping. On the night before his execution. And Peter certainly knew what day it was. He certainly knew why it was that Herod was waiting. He certainly knew that the Passover had just passed and that the very next day would likely be his last day, and yet here he is asleep. And of course, we've seen Peter sleeping before, right? Luke told us that Peter slept up on the Mount of Transfiguration while Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah. Matthew tells us that Peter's dozing off as Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet this time is very different. Because where Peter may have slept before out of disobedience or even disinterest or weakness or maybe weariness, this time we see Peter sleeping in an absolute triumph of his own faith. Because we see Peter blanketed, I believe, in in what we could call the peace that passes understanding. Of course, Peter had been in prison before. Peter knew his people were praying for him. But I believe that there was a much more specific reason why Peter could sleep so soundly. And that was he had the promise of Jesus. And remember, back in John chapter 21, remember that Jesus had told Peter specifically exactly how and when it was that Peter would die. In John 21, 18, Jesus says that when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. So Peter knew that he would die in his old age, that he would be executed on a Roman cross, right? With his arms outstretched, not by the sword, the way that James had just died. And Peter knew that it wasn't his time yet because he wasn't an old man yet. So it was Peter's faith in the promise of Jesus. His faith in the word of God, that's what gave him perfect peace and the ability to sleep like a baby. And so often, if we would just trust in all of those promises that God has given us, we too would find we have that same peace in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trial, that we'd be able to rest soundly because we're sustained by the word of God, even during those times when we're forced to wait for God to work. Because imagine this, Peter had been imprisoned and the church had been praying probably for over a week and yet the Lord still had not responded. And time clearly was running out. There were probably only hours left, which doesn't seem like a lot of time for us, but it's plenty of time for God, isn't it? Plenty of time for the God who's never early and who's never late, but is always right on time. I love what it says in Psalm 127. It says that it's vain for you to rise up early or to sit up late or to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. 
right? All the, all the worrying in the world doesn't change our situation. And the Lord gives us peace in the midst of it, and he allows us to rest. So here Peter is practicing Psalm 127. No signs of anxiety. He's able to sleep soundly, even on what seemed like it would be the last night before his imminent execution. And in fact, look what it says in verse 7. Peter slept so soundly. It says, now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. So this angel had to actually smack Peter to wake him up as the Lord supernaturally caused the the chains to fall off his wrist and supernaturally either kept the guards asleep or maybe put them to sleep. It says in verse 8, then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So in sort of a half-sleep stupor, Peter had no idea what was going on, and yet I love the way that he was obedient anyway. And I appreciate this because it reminds us that Peter obeyed without knowing exactly what was happening, but he knew enough to simply sense that God was doing something and that an explanation could come along later. Now, I think we need to stop for just a minute here because I think that these instructions that the angel gives to Peter, they seem kind of ordinary in the midst of such an extraordinary, I mean like mission impossible style jailbreak because basically what the angel says to Peter is tie up your underwear, right? Put on your shoes, now get dressed, And I don't think it's by accident that Luke includes that detail because I think that it's a great reminder that God so often will join the miraculous with the ordinary just to keep us encouraged to be in balance. And also, as we've talked about before, he wants to allow us to take part in the miracle that he's doing. Remember, we've seen Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, but then he asked the disciples to go around and gather up the leftovers, right? He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, but then he told her parents to make sure to what? Give her something to eat. And we saw when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he had the men roll the stone away from the tomb, and then they also were asked to loose Lazarus from his grave clothes afterward. Just a reminder that God alone can do the extraordinary, but he allows us as his people to partner with him to do the ordinary. And I appreciate one author also made this neat observation. He wrote that the same angel that removed the chains from Peter's hands could have put the shoes on Peter's feet, but he told Peter to do it. In fact, from that night on, Every time Peter put on his shoes, it must have reminded him of the prison miracle and encouraged him to trust the Lord. And isn't that so true for us too, that we can always encourage ourselves in the Lord by rehearsing the faithfulness 
of the Lord, right? As we rehearse and as we remember, as we remind ourselves of all of those ways that he's provided for us in the past, the ways that he's delivered us, especially when we thought there was no other way. Remember, God never, ever wastes miracles. He wants to use them to continue to have an effect in our life. So here, out they go, right? Peter and the angel, it's almost like they're moving, we get the sense they're moving invisibly, and they go right past the two guards who are watching inside the cell, right past the two guards who were supposed to be watching outside the cell. They're continuing right on their way out of the prison. It says in verse 10 that when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So the chains, the guards, the prison doors, even the iron gate at the edge of the city, none of those things meant anything to God. And Peter was instantly, he was completely set free. And I love what G. Campbell Morgan commented. He he said that the force of earnest, halting prayer was mightier than Herod and mightier than hell. And what a great reminder that whatever resources that Herod or the world have at their disposal that they can throw at us, right? Whether it's, you know, guards or prison doors or chains, they're no match for the power of heaven that's released by the prayer of the saints. Because that's what opens doors that are shut tight, And I love that phrase that describes how the gate that led to the city, how it opened for Peter. Here it says that it opened to them of its own accord. And the phrase uses this very specific ancient Greek word, automate, which of course means that the iron gates opened, what? Automatically for Peter. There was nothing that he had to do for those gates to open. And it occurred to me that so many of us spend so much time worrying about the huge iron gate long before we ever get to it. Or maybe that's just me. Right? Maybe it's a month beforehand and somehow we're anxious about that iron gate at the end of some street that's in front of us But rest assured that God will be faithful to take care of that automate, right, when we get to it. So next time you're worried about an iron gate, just remember that for Peter it opened of its own accord. And there's a wonderful story I came across of a man named Sundar Singh, who was a a Tibetan Christian, and he also was miraculously freed from a prison It says this, for preaching of the gospel, he was thrown into a well and a cover was set over it and securely locked. He would be left in the well until he died and he could see the bones and rotting corpses of those who had already perished in there. On the third night of his imprisonment, he heard someone unlocking the cover of the well and removing it. A voice told him to take hold of the rope that was being lowered. 
and Sundar was grateful that the rope had a loop he could put his foot in because he's, he had injured his arm in the fall down into the well. He was raised up, and the cover was replaced and locked, but when he looked to thank his rescuer, he could find no one. It says, when morning came, he went back to the same place he was arrested, and he started preaching again. News of the preaching came to the official who had him arrested, and Sundar was brought before him again. When the official said someone must have gotten the key and released him, they searched for the key and found it right on the official's own belt. See, God is still writing the book of Acts. And that story, as we've talked about, is continuing right along in our lives at well. Verse 11 says that when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So maybe he gets outside, you know, the kind of that night air, brisk air hits him. Peter's fully awake now, and he takes a moment to consider what it was that had actually just happened. And I think it's interesting for us to consider, too, that Peter's deliverance here from prison took place during the Passover season. And the Passover season, of course, was the time when the Jews celebrated their exodus right from their bondage in Egypt and the word that Luke uses here in verse 11 for delivered is the very same word that we saw Stephen use back in chapter 7 when he talked about the Jewish exodus so Peter has just experienced a whole new kind of exodus and it came again in answer to the earnest prayers of God's people. I think in all of this, before we move on, there's a kind of a question that nags at us and that tugs a little bit and, and kind of gets at our sense of fairness and our sense of justice. And that question is, why was James allowed to die and yet Peter was miraculously rescued? We think about it, and of course, both of them were dedicated servants of the very same God. They were both very much needed by the early church. We certainly couldn't say that Peter was more righteous than James was, or that he, Peter made less foolish mistakes than James did. And there seems, as we think through it, to be no basis that we can see, and yet James was martyred and Peter was rescued. And the only answer to this question lies safely in the sovereign will of God. And the the truth is that the reasons that God does what he does and the reasons that he doesn't do what he doesn't do are very often known only to him. What we do know is that James, having now graduated to glory, James didn't consider himself at all to be losing out in this deal in any way. And most simply, it wasn't time for Peter to go to his heavenly home yet. And until it was that time, Peter was absolutely safe in the hands and in the plan of heaven. 
And it's such an important encouragement for us to always remember that as followers of Jesus, nothing can come to us that hasn't already passed through the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. And it's especially in those times when we don't understand what's happening that we need to rely on and we need to really rest in the things that we do understand. And the things that we do understand are that God is for us. We understand that God does love us. We understand that God is still working things out for us. It was time for James, and it just wasn't time yet for Peter. And despite here what looked like a victory for Satan, or what looked like a victory for Herod, the throne of God in heaven was still very much in control. There was no throne in earth that was in control. It says in verse 12, So when he'd considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So Peter very naturally went where we would expect him to go. He went to the place where he knew that the Christians would be gathered together and would be praying. So he goes to that very familiar place, the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who of course would be the author later of the gospel according to Mark. Now this is likely the very same house where the upper room was located, where the Last Supper had been held, where the disciples had waited there for the coming of the Spirit. Many believe that this room sort of became the base of operations, if you will, for the church at Jerusalem. And when we consider that all of the believers who had been praying there, we consider how long and how earnestly they had been laboring in prayer, right? Again, praying night and day, probably for about a week. When we think about the fact that they'd been praying specifically for Peter's release from prison, it makes what we're about to read almost a little bit comical. Look what it says in verse 13 and 14. It says that as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. So this young maid, right, was so excited to hear from Peter that she leaves him standing outside. She runs back into the prayer meeting to tell them the good news. But they say, verse 15, you are beside yourself. They say, you've lost your mind. And yet she kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, well, it is his angel. Now, remember, the Jews believed in the idea of guardian angels. And some of the rabbis had even taught that those angels often looked like the person whom they were assigned to be watching over. And while there's some scriptural evidence that some of these things might be true, the bigger question, I think, to the angel suggestion here is, why would an angel bother to knock? 
Why would an angel not just simply walk right in or appear there in the room? And yet we see that reason and logic maybe wasn't flowing so freely right now. They basically say, look, don't tell us that Peter's standing outside because we know that he's locked away in prison. Now, you know, Rhoda, let us get back to praying for his release. And of course, the answer to their prayers was standing right there at the door and yet they didn't have faith enough to open the door to let him in. I think it's pretty ironic when we think about this, that God could get Peter out of prison, and yet Peter can't even get himself into a prayer meeting. Look at verse 16. It says, Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So here's poor Peter, right? He's just made this miraculous escape from prison. He's standing outside in the dead of night in the streets, banging on the gate, no doubt wondering when it was that the prison was going to notice that he was missing. And finally, it says the believers open the door, and then we read that they were astonished to see him there. Some of your translations might say that they were amazed or that they marveled or that they were shocked. And I think surely, if we're honest, we can all identify a little bit with this group of very sincere believers. We've prayed and we've prayed and we've prayed for something specific. And then when God comes in grace and he answers that prayer, we can hardly believe that it's really true. And we think, well, maybe there's been a mistake somewhere. And I think that there's a, a, such a great encouragement here in these verses because it reminds us in these believers that though their prayer was earnest, right, it was stretched out, it was to the limit, their prayer was earnest, but their faith itself was not overwhelming. And that even a little bit of faith can accomplish great things if it's placed properly in a great God. And it tells us also that the Lord in his grace responds to prayer even when there isn't a great amount of faith to back it up. These very sincere believers, they were praying fervently and they were praying intensely, but we really can't say they were praying the prayer of faith. And I, I think I like this story because I sometimes find myself praying a whole lot like they were praying. I can pray fervently and I can even pray intensely, but a lot of times, even as I'm praying, I'm not actually sure that anything's really going to happen. And I think what this story tells me is in a sense that's okay because God can still work through even just a tiny smattering of faith. And we remember what Jesus said in Matthew 20. He said that even just faith the, the size of a tiny little mustard seed, right? Just the tiniest amount, a little bit of faith, he said, could move mountains. And so the truth is that if, if you have a faith enough just at least to pray, that things can happen. Doors can open, right? Just ask Peter. 
And it's okay, I think, for us to admit that even in the most fervent of our prayer meetings, or even in the, those times of our private prayer, that there sometimes can be this kind of spirit of doubt and even unbelief. Because most of the time, we are a lot like that father. Remember the father who cried out to Jesus in Mark chapter 9? He said, Lord, I believe that help my unbelief, he said. So be encouraged this morning if there are any of us that feel kind of imprisoned or boxed in or kind of locked up in a place where we don't feel like anything's happening. Maybe it's in your job or maybe it's in uh, your family or another relationship or maybe even in a ministry that you're involved in. But we need to take heart and we need to keep hope and we need to pray anyway. Because sometimes it just it's, it takes only enough faith to pray, and God can still make things happen. I love later, Peter would quote in his first letter to the church, he'd quote these words from Psalm 34, and I think he may have written them thinking about his own experience here. He says that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. So the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and that's why Peter could have had this perfect peace. And the ears of the Lord are open to their prayers, which is why these precious believers could pray the way that they did, just in the same way that we know that we can pray and be assured of the fact that God can see us and that he can hear our prayers. Now, we have to imagine... When they finally got there to the door, it says they were astonished. They probably broke out into some cries of joy. But look what it says in verse 17. It says, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So quiet down, Peter says. It's the middle of the night out here. Now, understand, the James that Peter tells them to go and tell the story to is not the James who had just been killed. That would have been a whole nother sort of a faith miracle, right? This was James, the brother of Jesus, who was one of the, the elders or the leaders specifically of the church of Jerusalem there. And then notice, interestingly, I think knowing certainly that, that Herod would want to arrest him again, it simply says that Peter departed and went to another place. And yet where that place actually was, no one knows. Because except for a very brief mention in Acts chapter 15, this is the last that Luke writes of Peter. We know from Galatians chapter 2 that Peter would meet Paul up in Antioch. We know later he would write, of course, two letters to the believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 tells us that Peter traveled in ministry with his wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 suggests that he at one point visited Corinth. I will say that there's actually no evidence in Scripture that Peter ever made a visit to Rome, which is important only because it would have made it a little bit difficult for him to be the founder of the church at Rome, as some claim 
that he was. Now, instead, what we see is that Peter just walks off the pages of the book of Acts to make room, as we've said, for the story of Paul and the account of all the ministry which we're going to see among the Gentiles. But we're not going to see that until Luke ties up a couple more loose ends, letting us know quickly what would become of King Herod. Watch the way that Herod responds ruthlessly in these next couple verses. Verse 18, it says, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So infuriated, right? Embarrassed by the news of Peter's escape, Herod basically left Jerusalem to go down and pout in his palace in the beautiful seacoast city of Caesarea. And on the way out the door, of course, he has all of the guards killed who had been charged with watching over Peter. Now, that would have been standard practice. In that day, if a guard's prisoner escaped, then the guard was given the penalty that the prisoner was supposed to have had, and in this case, it would have been death. Also, understand this. If Herod couldn't please the Jews with the execution of one Christian, then, of course, the next best thing would be the execution of 16 hated Roman soldiers. Remember, Herod was as ruthless as he was evil. Now, we talked just a second ago about Psalm 34, which we noted that Peter quoted when he wrote his first letter to the church, thinking back maybe to this story. We said that he had said that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But then it continues saying that the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And that's exactly what we're going to see quickly in our final few verses of our text today. Verses 20 through 25, we see, of course, that God ultimately has the victory. Verse 20, it says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Now, we don't know why Herod was upset with these two cities, but we do know that this would have been bad news for them because as, a, as non-farming communities, they would have been completely dependent upon Herod, the government, for food. So in true political fashion, we see that they bribe this man Blastus, right? That was basically Herod's chief of staff, and they want to get an audience before Herod. It says in verse 21 and 22 that on a set, uh, on a, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now this scene was tailor-made for a man like Herod. And the Jewish historian Josephus records that this took place during a festival that was in place to honor Claudius Caesar. And this is what Josephus writes of Herod. It says, He put on a garment made wholly of silver 
and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theatre early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out from one place, and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. So here's Herod, dressed in these most impressive robes, made of pure silver threads. And I was thinking this is an outfit that would make even like Elton John envious of this get up. And here Herod speaks to this audience that was there basically eager to please him. They're playing on his Herodian ego, telling him that he's a god. He's loving every minute of it. He's soaking it all in. He's reveling in this moment. And then immediately it says in verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Interesting, isn't it? Normally people die and then they're eaten by worms. But here, Dr. Luke, as we would expect, gives us what is a very accurate and a very fitting sort of a medical autopsy of Herod. And it agrees exactly with the rest of what Josephus recorded of Herod during that same event, he says that a severe, a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he'd been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. So smitten there at the ceremony by the angel for taking the glory that belongs to God alone, I think it's interesting, the way Herod died was certainly fitting for the way that he lived, was very true of his spiritual state, because Herod was corrupted from the inside out. He was ultimately eaten alive by these parasites that were inside of him. And so we see that Herod, here the bitter enemy of the church of God, the one who had just executed James was now executed at the hands of a just God. We could say that Herod reaped exactly what it was that he sowed. And yet look in verse 24, it says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. What a contrast right here by the end of the chapter. The great Herod is eaten by worms, but the word of God grew and was multiplied. Here's Herod who had fought against Almighty God. He killed James, but he couldn't defeat God's plan. He arrested Peter, and yet the earnestly praying church saw God rescue Peter. And then we see beyond that that the work of God continued, and Luke even says that it multiplied. It's kind of like we see this river of grace becoming wider and wider and deeper and deeper as it starts to flow out and reach the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 25, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem 
when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now remember, this all started just as Barnabas and Saul had come down, Saul had come down from Antioch and gone up to Jerusalem, and they were bringing assistance to the church there who was affected by this famine. And now at the end of this, we see them heading back to Antioch to continue to be part of this great work of God that was well underway. But this time, they take with them John Mark. Now, it's interesting, Colossians chapter 4, Paul tells us that John Mark was also Barnabas's cousin. And we're going to see that he's going to accompany them on the very first missionary journey, which we're going to look at in the very next chapter. But before we do that, of course, we have Easter. And before we finish today, we're going to have communion. And though it's a little bit strange, I think, not to be doing this together, as I was really praying about this, I think it's kind of a special opportunity because it's special because we can, I think, especially celebrate the wonderful unity that we share with one another in Jesus because of that sacrifice of Jesus, right? That's what communion represents, right? It's because of his broken body, it's because of his shed blood, that we've not only been reconciled with the Lord, right, that we have forgiveness of our sins and that we have intimacy with him, but we've also been reconciled to one another, right? We're intimately connected to one another by the Spirit in a unique and special way because we've been united together in the body of Christ. So as we take some time we're going to play another worship song this morning. I'm going to allow you to, to take communion on your own, you know, to lead those in your family through this process. But as you do it, I really want to encourage you. Thank Jesus for not only what he's done, but also take time to thank the Lord Jesus for the whole body of Christ as well. For those who we're united to, um, through his spirit and through his sacrifice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, and we do pray that as we, um, as we take this time, Lord, and we share in this communion, Lord, that you would do a special work in our hearts through your spirit, Lord, that though we are separated, Lord, that we would be joined together with one another, Lord, that as we take the bread reminded of his broken body, Lord, and as we take the cup reminded of his blood shed for our sins, Father, that we would be reminded as well that we are united together in him, Lord, that we share one spirit, Lord, that we have the mind of Christ, Lord, and that um, the physical distance can't separate us, Lord, that we are we continue to be your sons and daughters, Lord, your special children, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. We take this cup now, in Jesus' name.